We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1 today, and if, if you would just open up to 1 Peter 1, um, and then, but and just before I jump into that, real quick, came here, I think it was July 22nd, if I remember right, to do a, an update on where we were with Poland. At that point, we were probably about halfway um, supported, and now we're about 80%. So by God's grace, the support keeps coming in, and we're getting awfully close. So you just would treasure your prayers as we keep marching toward Poland. Now, just like Spain, Poland also it was not affected by the Reformation. It was a little bit. The, the Reformation made some inroads into Poland, and so there were some good things happening. But then, uh, really, the, the Catholic Church, especially with the work of the Jesuits, pushed a lot of the, the things that were happening 500 years ago with the gospel going into Poland out. And now Poland still remains as a, a almost entirely Roman Catholic country. And if you remember from when, when we were here before, the, the great cons- it's not that we have like a hatred for Catholics, right? Um, no, we don't have a hatred for Catholics, but the concern is that uh, the Roman Catholic um, doctrines make people think that you have to do something to be good enough to get to heaven. That, yeah, yeah, God is gracious, but you still have to do like your 10% and God will do his 90, something like that. And so our desire is to go there and to give the gospel to the people in Poland so they can know that there's free forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ alone and then also uh, to train up pastors. So it sounds like Eric is joining a ministry in Spain where the TMAI has that ambition to keep training up pastors so that the work of the ministry can keep expanding throughout the country. And that's what we hope to do eventually. It'll be a little more grassroots. We don't have all that infrastructure yet in Poland, so it's just going to be evangelism, informally training pastors, hopefully setting up an informal training center, and then eventually, hopefully doing maybe even a TMAI and training pastors. So... um, be a great joy for us, and we look forward to all that God has for us. It's humbling, especially as it gets closer, uh, to think about going overseas, and just all the, all the questions and all that. So we would just really treasure your prayers as we march toward Poland. Um, thanks for coming here today. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in, okay? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Berean Bible Church and the things you're doing here. I thank you for how the people here love the Word of God. Thank you for how they love fellowshipping with one another. Thank you for all the, um, all the blessings that you give to us in our lives. Lord, we are tremendously blessed. Lord, our problem is that we don't see enough of your blessing in our life. We don't think on enough everything that you've done for us in the person and the work of Christ. Thank you, God, so much. And I just pray this morning that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would come humbly to your word Lord, especially on Sunday mornings, it seems like we often have so many distractions on our hearts. It's hard to get here. There's different things occupying our attention. We just pray that you'd help us through the ministry of the Spirit to pay particularly close attention to what you say in the Bible today. And we pray, Lord, that you would change our lives and that we won't live, we won't live the same way after we're reminded once again of these wonderful truths in 1 Peter chapter 1. So God, we, we ask you to come And I just would pray, Lord, as we'll be talking about trials today, I pray for anybody in this room who's going through a time of trial, difficulty, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that the truths from your word about trials would be like putting gas in their tank to give them more strength to continue on in their journey toward heaven. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to always have an eternal perspective, and we pray for the richest blessings, Lord. Use me as your instrument to bring the word of God to the hearts of these people all so that your great and glorious name might get all the glory and honor that is due. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this experience of suffering is pervasive in this world, is it not? 
we just uh, saw all those fires in Northern California and in Southern California, and it made no distinction. It just burned everything in its path, all kinds of damage and destruction done by those fires. You think about earthquakes, you think about floods, you think about just day-to-day life, whether it's a natural disaster or things that happen because we live in a sinful and fallen world. There are ways that we suffer because people sin against us. There are nations at war with each other because of sin. Um, There's medical trials. There's financial trials. There's all kinds of things in our lives that are difficult. We live in a fallen world, and we deal with difficult things in our world. And so it's no surprise that God, in His Word, would give us several passages in the Bible that talk about affliction, that talk about suffering, that talk about trials, that talk about temptation, that talk about difficulty. You just think for a second, you guys are going through the book of James, right, as a church? So not too long ago, Eric, I'm sure, was preaching in James chapter 1, counting it all joy when you face various trials. You think about the book of Job, how we have a record of a man who was severely, severely afflicted, though there was no sin in his life. Um, you, you think about First Peter, where we'll look today, and there's different things about trials. You look at the Psalms, and it's just filled with times of affliction and difficulty, and the psalmist always going back to the Lord, or almost always going back to the Lord and seeking the Lord's face and His help in all things. We live in a difficult world. Just imagine a worst-case scenario uh, with me for a moment, almost like a book of Job kind of scenario. Imagine somebody that has a terminal illness, and they just found out about it, and that they recently lost multiple loved ones, and that they were going through a financial trial. Just something really bad like that. What do you think that a Christian might say to that person? Or what do you think that you might say to that person going through such a time of difficulty and such a time of trial? What do you think you would say? I, could, I thought of a few things, maybe, somebody would say. Hey, you know what? This is all just the work of Satan. That's all it is. Hey, you know what? I know it's hard, but there's got to be a reason for it. Just hang in there. It's okay. Just give it some time. As time keeps going, all your wounds will heal. Boy, you must have done something really bad. Did you, you sinned pretty bad, huh? Yeah, careful with that one, right? That's the book of Job. His friends were, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that route if I were you. And then, uh, you know, it's just part of living in a fallen world. And so for the most part, those things are maybe in some ways true. But what I want to do today is look not exhaustively at what God's Word says, but at least at one little part of what God says about our time of affliction and our time of trials in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. And actually, we're going to zoom in on verses 6 to 9 today. But I'm going to read verses 3 to 12 because this is all actually one gigantic run-on sentence in the Greek. And so I want to just read the whole thing, and then I'll try to kind of give you a feel of what Peter's doing, and then we'll jump into actually getting to the text, okay? So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, really, this, these 12 verses, it all kind of finds its form and has its substance all in the very first word of verse 3, blessed. That word that we often say, and I don't think we often know what it means, blessed. Blessed be the God and Father. Another way to say this simply is praise God. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3 to 12 in 1 Peter chapter 1 are a hymn of praise to God. And Peter, like I said, this is one big sentence. And he just keeps building on himself over and over again and keeps pointing back to how we should praise God because of our eternal life. That's really the main point of 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise God because of our eternal life. And that's how, he's, that's how he's building his argument here. And in verses 3 to 5, he has a particular attention to the future. In verses 6 to 9, he has a particular attention to our present experience. And in verses 10 to 12, he has a particular attention to our salvation viewed from the past. So he actually goes future, present, past. And so we're going to look today at the, our present experience of rejoicing and trials. And really what I want you to take away from, from this today is just three things three things. Um, the, the main point is, praise God for our, our ter- eternal life brings enjoyment in the present. But three things I want you to kind of know is that Christians experience rejoicing and grief. Christians experience love for Jesus. And Christians experience great rejoicing. Okay, so that was Christians experience rejoicing and grief. Christians experience love for Jesus. And Christians experience great rejoicing. Now, what's going on in First Peter? Why did Peter decide to write a letter to these people? Well, best we can tell, this letter was written in the 60s, uh, right about the time when a, a gentleman, if we, maybe not a gentleman, but a man named Nero came to the throne in Rome. Maybe you've heard that name Nero before. He was a bad dude, and he uh, persecuted the, the church. There's a tradition, we're not totally sure if this is true, but there was a big fire in Rome, and tradition says that, that Nero actually blamed the Christians for the fire because he wanted to burn down the city to build it bigger and better. And so at least in Rome, there was a huge persecution of, of believers. And there was all kinds of heinous things that were done to Christians in Rome. And Peter's actually not writing to people in Rome, but Peter himself is probably in Rome writing the letter. And he's sending it to people in modern-day Turkey. And uh, we don't know for sure if there's been a, an empire-wide persecution that's gone all the way across from Rome, all the way across into Turkey, or if it's just that there's a, a building pressure on the church. They have this crazy guy ruling so much of the world, enacting persecutions, and they might have more and more hostility rising to the surface. And, and, and Nero's probably looking at like, ooh, this isn't looking, I'm sorry, Peter's looking and saying, oh, th- this isn't looking too good. And so Peter writes a letter to some beleaguered saints. The, the temperature is rising in their lives. And so Peter is writing a letter to them to encourage them, to comfort them, and to help them know how to get through the suffering that they experience in their lives. That's what Peter is doing. Um, And so he starts off, out of the gate, he starts off with talking about how great God is. 
Isn't that cool? He doesn't give a to-do list, like, you know, here's what you do to avoid suffering. Uh, you know, don't go out in public. If you have guns, make sure they're loaded at home. You know, he doesn't have anything like that. He, he, he first starts off, and he wants them to have their perspective beware, heavenward. He wants their perspective to be on God. And we actually see that right away. So the, f- the first thing, Christians experience rejoicing in grief. Okay, verse 6, in this you rejoice. Well, whenever you see a this or a that in Scripture, it's always good to say, what is it referring back to? So verse 6, in this you rejoice. What is the this in which we are rejoicing? And it's simply the truths taught in verses 3 to 5, which have a particular attention to verse 3, being born again to a living hope. Not a dead hope, but a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our living hope is connected with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I think it's fair to say that our living hope is our anticipated resurrection life. As Christians, we don't look forward just to buying a better house or a nicer car or having a higher paying job. We look forward toward marching toward our heavenly kingdom with a resurrected body in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ with him. And Peter's saying, because of what God has done for you, look at verses 3 to 5. He's, he, according to his great mercy, he caused you to be born again. I mean, he took you when you were a rebel, hater of God, sinful to the core of who you are. Not, not only just because you, you, you did sinful things, but because it came from your sinful heart. God, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we are marching forward and onward to our future heavenly inheritance. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. This is what God has done for us. He's saying because of these great truths, because of what God has done for you eternally, you rejoice in this. You rejoice. It's not just like a little bit of joy. It's a great rejoicing. As a Christian, you should have, and, and if, if you don't, then we, we should ask God for more of this. We should have a great rejoicing in our heart because of everything that God has done for us. In this you rejoice. Now listen, it's interesting though because we can rejoice even in our suffering and even in our trials. Did you know that? That's what he says. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, Peter gets it. His head's not in the sand. He realizes that we live in a fallen world and we experience grief. We experience sorrow. We experience sadness. I mean, go back and read the first you know, 12 chapters of the book of Acts. Peter was imprisoned for the faith. Peter was beaten for the faith. Uh, again, tradition, this, this one's not in the Bible, but tradition says that Peter was ultimately crucified upside down. But just before, he was crucified upside down. He had to see his wife get crucified. And, and, um, and he said to her traditionally, remember the Lord. Pretty seasonable counsel, I think. But, but Peter gets it. I mean, he knows that we live in a grieving time. And, and maybe some of you right now are feeling the grief of certain trials in your life. And there's that anguish that you feel. Well, I want you to know from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, that you can have the dual experience, the simultaneous experience of both sadness and gladness, of both joy and sorrow. Um, this is all throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Romans 5.3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Did you hear that? Rejoice, suffering. 
Acts 5.41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. James 1.2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, joy and trials. This is the dual experience that we can have as believers. There can be an undergirding joy in your life, an undergirding rejoicing in your life, no matter what kind of grieving circumstances you're in, because of what God has done for you, because of what God has done for you. There should be an undergirding joy in your life. It reminds me of those big icebreaker ships. You know, they're designed to actually cut through sea ice, and they have a strengthened hull, hull, H-U-L-L, a strengthened hull and uh, and it's shaped differently so it can, it can break through the ice. It has more propelling power, I think, too. And so even though there's these obstacles in the way, it just keeps propelling itself forward. And that's what it can be like in our lives. We have an undergirding joy propelling us forward through all the grieving trials that we might walk through in our lives. Praise the Lord for that. But, but Peter is saying you can have this in the midst of trials, and then he tells you certain things about trials. Okay, so these are just things I want to give you I think Peter wants you to have, I think the Lord wants you to know, just a few truths about trials. First of all, they're temporary. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, right? For a little bit of time. I mean, our lives here are like so short. And the longer that we're in eternity, the shorter our lives here we're going to seem. I mean, our first five years with the Lord is going to be like, well, yeah, my life on earth still felt pretty long. But then 10 years, we're like, well, you know, yeah, it still felt long. But 50 years, 60 years, 100 years? 543 years, we're just gonna, it's just going to keep going, and our time here on this earth will seem relatively less and less significant. It's the tiniest blip on the radar, and I guess in eternity, I don't even know how you can have a blip on radar, but it doesn't, because it just keeps going, so I don't know how that works. It just keeps getting smaller, um, but that, that's what our, our, our lives are so short. He's saying, listen, first of all, know that your trials are temporary. Now, sometimes our trials are temporary in our experience in life, right? Sometimes we get the flu, and then we get better, like two days later. They're, they're that short. But what Peter is talking about here is even if you had a lifelong trial, something that lasted until the day that you breathe your last breath, it's still short if our eyes are on eternity, right? If our eyes aren't on eternity, then it's going to feel really long. But if we take the time and meditate on what God has done for us in Christ and the salvation that we have in Christ— then, then, then these are just short, temporary trials, and we have our ultimate hope in heaven. That's the first thing he says. Trials are temporary. And just, you know, listen to Romans 8.18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's saying, Paul says the same thing. It's a short thing. It's not worth the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talks about light, momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Okay, so Paul is on the same page. And it, it's like an athlete running a race, right? I mean, I read a book a couple years ago. I, I bet Oliver read it too for class, but it was called um, For the Glory. Has anybody read For the Glory, the Eric Little book? It's pretty good. You should read it. Uh, okay, I got somebody in the back there. Eric Little was that guy who, Chariots of Fire guy who won the Olympics in, in Paris, I think in 1922. But for the Glory really traces his life after that. He was a missionary, and even though he had all kinds of potential to keep winning more gold medals in the Olympics, he actually went to China to be a missionary. But one part of the book recounts a time, I think when he was training for the Olympics, he was running a 400-yard race, <laughs> and, uh, and as he was running, one of the other racers pushed him off the tracks, and he thought it was just an automatic disqualification. 
And so he's sitting there, but then he saw his coach in the stand saying, get back on the track and run. And so he gets back on the track and runs, and he ran so hard that he actually beat everybody and got first place and and pushed himself to such an extent that he passed out and I think woke up like 10 minutes later and asked for some tea. So that's, that's Eric Little, but what's the point? He was willing, because of his love for the victory, his love to win the race, and his, his eye toward the end, toward the goal, he was willing to undergo all kinds of difficulty. I mean, his body passed out. Do you think he was having like, you know, just kind of smiling, having fun when he was running down that 400 meters? No, of course not. He passed out at the end. And so that's what it's like in our lives too, is our eyes are toward the end. It gives us the strength to keep propelling ourselves forward because these trials are temporary. We need to have an eternal perspective. In fact, Peter can't get away from an eternal perspective. Even in our verses that we read, he can't get away from an eternal perspective. I'm not going to read them all over again, but he talks about our living hope. He talks about our inheritance, that's future. He talks about salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in verse 5. He talks right now about the temporariness of trials. He talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then even throughout the rest of 1 Peter, I'm not going to go through it all, but he just keeps talking about the end, the visitation, all these things that have an eternal element. That's what, that's what we need to have our eyes on, this eternal perspective. So trials are temporary. Another illustration I, I heard from, um, actually I read it in, from a commentator, but he was recounting in, I think, I forget exactly when, the 1800s about, the, there were some, some slaves, and that was when the slavery was really bad. It was just horrible. Slaves were sold in, into subhuman conditions. Families were separated from each other. But some of those slaves were Christians. And even though they went through all that difficulty, they would sing songs that showed that they had a future hope. And you've probably sang them when you were a kid. Um, Swing low, sweet chariot coming forth to carry me home. I looked over the Jordan, what did I see coming for to carry me home? A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. They had an eternal perspective in the midst of all their difficulties. So first thing that Peter wants you to know about trials is they're temporary. Second, he wants you to know that they're necessary. You're like, oh, great. <laughs> great, this guy's preaching on trials. What's this, what's this week going to be like? Right? Um, but this is actually an encouragement for us. Trials, he says, if necessary, and the way it's written in the Greek, it could almost be like, if necessary, in parentheses, and they are. <laughs> you know, we do go through trials. They are necessary. But they all come at God's sovereign pleasure. It's all God's control. There's never a time that you just hit bad luck or that you accidentally went into a trial. There's, there's never a time. I remember when I was here about eight months ago, Oliver was preaching and talked about God's sovereignty even when the toothpaste falls off your toothbrush into the, into the sink bowl. I mean, everything that we walk through is all under God's sovereignty. And you might say, well, that doesn't comfort me very much. So you're saying God is the one just bringing this in? Is he up there, you know, sadistically loving to do this to us? No, of course not. God is a good God. And so when we recognize that God is a good God and that he sovereignly brings trials into our lives, then it brings us great comfort because God deemed it necessary for our good and for his glory. Romans 8, 28, he works all things together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Even if people sin against you, God can still work through that. Even in your own sin and the consequences, God can still work through that for your good and his glory. Genesis 50, 20, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. 
They were concerned that he was going to get retaliation, and he said to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. These trials are from God's sovereign, loving hand. And if he sent his son for us, if he loves us that much, don't you think he cares about us when we're going through trials? Don't you think he hears every prayer that we pray to God when we go through trials? Don't you think he, he bends his ear? I, got, I have young kids. Actually, one of them is right there. <laughs> I have young kids, and they, they get very upset sometimes when I withhold something from them or give something to them because they don't have the same level of understanding that I do. If they understood what I understood, they wouldn't be so upset that I wouldn't give them, you know, chocolate at like 9 o'clock at night or something. They, they would understand that better. They know it would ultimately be for their good because they won't get a bad night's sleep and they'll be well-rested for the next day. If they understood, but they don't. And that's a little bit what it's like for us. Sometimes we're in the midst of it, and we just have to remember God is good. We can trust Him, even if we don't understand why we're suffering the way that we are. God is good, and we can trust Him, and He's going to work everything out together for his glory and for your good. And your trials are necessary. They're underneath God's sovereign umbrella. You never walk through a trial without God sovereignly ordaining it. Praise God for that. Next, trials are various. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Um, it's not as if we all have a one-size-fits-all trial in our life. It's not like you've been a Christian for a year. Okay, it's time for the financial trial. And then two years later, okay, now that you made it through that, it's time for the interpersonal work trial. You know, it's not how it works. They, they come in different shapes and different sizes for different people at different times and different circumstances. God brings various trials into our lives. Some things may be more difficult for us. Maybe some trial that I would walk through would be more impactful for me because it's harder for me to deal with than it would be for, for you. But God brings these various trials. Um, it's really the same as James chapter 1, verse 2. It's actually the same word, I think, various, as we walk through various trials. And it's interesting, that word various, if you go back to the, the you know, it's kind of nerdy, but I have a feeling you guys are kind of a, no offense, no, sort of a nerdy church, so maybe you already know this, <laughs> but, um, sorry, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? The, the Old Testament was basically written in Hebrew, and then I think about 300 years before Jesus came, they translated it into um, Greek. So that's called the Septuagint. And in, the, in Genesis 43, when it talks about Joseph's many-colored coat, it's that same word, various, various colors. So you can think about trials being many-colored many colored trials. Trials, uh, but, but you still might be thinking, but Lord, why? Why do we have to go through trials? And that's the last thing in this verse, at least, and I'm not sure how far we're going to get today, but this, this is the last thing in this verse, at least, that um, God wants us to know is that trials have results. So trials, we, went already, we, we said that trials are temporary, they're necessary, and then now trials have results. They have results. Well, what are the results of a trial? Well, first of all, they prove your faith. They prove your faith. And this is getting into verse 7 now. It says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials prove your faith. I think that's what Peter is getting at when he compares it to gold being refined by fire, and, but more so talking about the tested genuineness of your faith in verse 7. When you make it through a trial, 
and you're still trusting in the Lord, and throughout the trial you are begging God for help, you can be assured that your faith is the real deal. You didn't give up. Uh, it wasn't as if, the, as if Satan was able to take you away from God, and you realize, wow, God sustained my faith, right? It's not that you're sustaining your own faith. It's all glory goes to God. God is the one enabling you and empowering you. John 15, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? So we can't do anything apart from God. And so God sustaining you. You say, wow, I do have a real and living and active faith because I was able to make it through by God's grace, that difficult trial. I have tested genuine faith. And Peter's saying that that faith is more precious than gold that perishes. I mean, the, the most valuable substance and a, and a very durable substance, he's saying your faith is more valuable than that. And so this is one of the things that can encourage you, a little bit of extra encouragement from Peter. He's, he's, giving, he's helping you to see the value of your faith, and that is more valuable than gold. And trials help to show that your faith is genuine. In the end, when the Lord brings the new heavens and the new earth, this is Second Peter chapter 3, everything is going to be melted with an intense heat. It's going to be super hot. Everything is going to be gone. And, uh, and I won't get into all of it now. Scholars disagree if the earth is going to be reformed from it's going to be there and just kind of totally made new or if it's going to be like obliterated in a brand new earth. I don't know if I have a, a thought on that yet, but everything is going to be gone. Your gold wedding ring that you're wearing is going to be gone one day. No matter how nice of the gold it was, everything is going to disappear. But you know what won't? Is your faith. You'll, your faith will continue on in, in the Lord because you have, what? Eternal life. That's what Peter keeps coming back to, is your eternal life. And so that's one thing. Trial has a result. They're proving. They show that your faith is real. Another result of trials is that they're sanctifying. I think we all know this pretty well in our experience. Trials, they hurt a little bit. And it's a little bit like your gold. Verse 7 being put to the fire so that the impurities come out. You didn't realize that you struggled with a sin until you're in a trial, and then there's cer- certain things in your heart that come up to the surface, and you're like, wow, Lord, I didn't even know that that was in my heart. I, I said before, um, I didn't know that I struggled with anger until I had young kids. I mean, I knew a little bit, but then once I had young kids, it's like, man, that really comes out a lot more, doesn't it? Um, and and you, you confess it to the Lord, and you realize that's something you have to grow in. God reveals that to you. You confess it, and then, by God's grace, you're being sanctified. And the trials wean us from loving the world, and God uses these things to make you holier and to make you more fit for service in His kingdom. Isn't that good? Praise the Lord for that. Um, and then another thing. Oh, here, listen to this. Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now... I keep your word. And then James 1, 2, trials, remember, they produce endurance, right? So these trials in our lives, they also sanctify us. Just like gold is refined by the fire, so also trials refine our faith, and we become more sanctified as a result. And then here's, I think, what Peter's really getting at, this result of the trial. Again, it's an eternal perspective thing, and it's at the end of verse 7. He's saying that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when I first read this and was thinking about it, I thought, oh, okay. So he's just trying to encourage you that as you go through trials, in the end, you'll ultimately give glory and praise to God. And that's true. We will ultimately, in the end, give praise and honor and glory to God. But Peter actually has something else in mind here, I think, 
and it's a little bit counterintuitive, and it's, a, it's humbling to read this, but he's trying to encourage them that as they endure trials, he's trying to encourage their hearts, and so it's better to take this as, at the end, God will, in some sense, give us praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And before you throw your rocks, let me just, throw you, let me just show you a couple verses to show you what I mean. What about in the parable of the talents? Remember what he says to the ones who are faithful? Well done, good and faithful servant. In some sense, there is, um, praise is a hard word, but in some sense, there's an acclamation of what they've done. Well done, good job. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And then this is just a short parable I'm going to read, and it really gets to the same thing here of God serving us, and, and it's such a service to us that he would give us and acclaim to us praise and glory and honor. So Luke chapter 12, verse 35, says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will, who's the he? The master. He will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. This is just the graciousness of God that as we go through trials, one day God is going to be acclaiming us and affirming us for getting through those difficult trials that we went through. So Peter's saying, hey, look at the eternal perspective here. One day God's actually going to give you a job well done because of how you made it through these trials. So they are certainly not vain because God is honored in how you respond to your trials and you will not regret it in the end when God gives, in some sense to you, praise and glory and honor. Now, praise and glory and honor are to God alone. I'm not saying that God worships us, but I'm saying this is a a way that we'll worship God even more because he's going to bring this blessing and this gift back to us. So praise is probably recognition, glory, maybe referring to participation in the kingdom, and honor um, is referring probably to rewards or positions that they receive in the kingdom with, based on how you respond to your trials. So praise the Lord, our trials have purposes. They have purposes. And just to illustrate this, um, I, I read this uh, pretty often, I, I th- I, or this little story pretty often, but I think you'll be encouraged by it. This is from Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. In 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She'd already been the first woman to to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in a boat alongside told her that she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that she was less than a half mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And what Peter's trying to help you to do here is to clear the fog and to recognize, yeah, this is hard. This life is hard. You do go through grieving trials in this life. But as we see our lives in an eternal perspective and we think about how one day God will 
acclaim us for getting through these trials, the very faith that he sustained, then he is so gracious to affirm, it should give us strength and it should clear the fog and we should be able to see the shore so that we can press on a little bit more in our life and keep pressing on toward heaven. And I just real quick, I just want to go over the last, uh, these last couple of verses. I won't spend as long on these ones, um, but just on verses 8 and 9, the second thing that God wants you to know is that, is that Christians experience a love for Christ. And look at verse 8. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter's saying here, look, you guys, even though you didn't get to sit on the Sea of Galilee on the shore and eat breakfast with Jesus like I did, you still have a vital, loving relationship with Jesus. Just because you didn't get to see the way that he set up the tent that we would sleep in at nighttime, you still have this relationship with the Lord. Even though we didn't have this firsthand knowledge, it was all written down for us, and God the Holy Spirit reveals these things to us so that we have this relationship with the Lord. He's saying, rejoice in that. You have a love for Christ right now. If you ob- and how, how do you know if you have a love for Christ? Well, if you obey Christ. You have a love for Christ right now. And then he also says, Christians experience great rejoicing. That's the third thing. Just kind of rushing through these last couple, but he says they experience great rejoicing in verses the second part of verse 8 and the verse 9, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He's saying even though, even though you don't have Jesus' insight, you have a great rejoicing. It goes back to that again. You have a great rejoicing. And he says, too, that you have faith. You have rejoicing in Jesus with faith. You have rejoicing and you have faith and you're looking forward, ultimately, verse 9, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that salvation we already have in principle right now, don't we? We already have freedom from sin. We already have forgiveness from sin. We're no longer underneath the dominion of sin. We still struggle, but we don't, we're not enslaved to sin like we were anymore. We have all these future promises, all this future hope God has lavished on us. And so we can rejoice in trials we experience a great love for Christ, and we experience great rejoicing. So what do we do with all this? I, I think most of it's been pretty clear, Peter, just telling us these things. I think it already sinks into our hearts to have our eyes fixed on that day. But then Peter makes it explicitly clear in verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when? Well, the last time, at the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end. So Peter even brings this home and says, here's what you do with all of this. Set your hope in it. Set your hope in what God has done for you in Christ and what he will continue to do in giving you all these promises. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to have that hope and that undaunted passion for heaven. So don't put your hope in a doctor don't put your hope in, um, in your bank account being full. Don't put your hope in a change of circumstances. Don't put your hope in getting a new job or whatever it is that you're struggling with right now. Your hope should be that Christ has already done everything for you and you need to set your hope fully on that. And that will give you strength to persevere in these trials. And for some of you, 
you hear these things, and, and this is all just from another world. Like, you're like, I have never rejoiced in sorrow. I don't have a love for Christ, and I don't have great rejoicing. Well, maybe that's, maybe, maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you've never entrusted your life to Christ. Maybe you've never bowed the knee to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And today would be a great day. I think most of you in here, I mean, we're at a church, <laughs> and a good church. I'm, I'm sure most of you have saving faith in Christ. But if there's anybody here who doesn't know the Lord, this would be the day to do that. And so that your hope, too, can be set fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me pray, and we'll um, have, I think we're going to do communion here in just a moment, okay? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that our trials are all under your sovereign hand, and that you use these things to bless us and to help us. Lord, I, I pray for this church body, that anybody who's going through hard times right now, that our minds, that their minds will be fixed on these truths, and that these truths would strengthen us, and that you would help us to have that dual reality of sadness and gladness, even though we're grieved by the trials, that we would feel and, and know that you're sovereignly caring for us and have a great rejoicing that propels us forward. Uh, I pray that you'd be honored in this time of communion and that you would help us to live lives every day of our life to your glory and honor and praise. And it's to you that we give praise alone. In your name we pray. Amen.